All right, you can turn over to Romans. Romans, if you're visiting with us here in our church, we go through books of the Bible, usually, is what we do. We teach through certain books of the Bible, and right now we're uh, just in chapter 5 of the book of Romans, which was written by the Apostle Paul. And the, the entire theme that uh, Paul is talking about here in Romans from basically this whole, this whole entire chapter all the way back through chapter 3, he's really talking about salvation. He's zeroing in on salvation. And in this section especially, verses 12 to 21, um, his emphasis comes is that the only way that you can have salvation is through having faith in Jesus Christ, in the work of Christ on Calvary. There's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to obtain eternal life. Uh, you can try to be as good as you want to be, but you're never going to be good enough because Jesus said that you have to be perfect um, as the Father's perfect, and none of us are perfect. And so we're, we're starting at a deficit, <laughs> We're starting in the hole, and we have to realize that in order to realize the only way to get out of the hole of sin and judgment and unrighteousness is through the sacrifice of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, There's no other way to be right with God than through faith in the work of Christ. And that's what Romans chapters 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3, he shows us over and over again how sinful we are. He, he continually kind of beats the drum that we're all sinners. we all fallen short. We're all uh, unrighteous. There's none good. No, not one, he says. We're doomed. We're damned. We're condemned under the wrath of God. And we're sentenced to eternal death in hell. And then, in beginning in verse uh, chapter 3, 4, and 5, he begins to show us how we can have eternal life through Christ. That, yeah, it looks hopeless, but you know what? There is hope in Christ. And we've been learning about this salvation, and particularly in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And uh, here in chapter 11, he, or chapter 5, he actually concludes in, in verse 11 that he says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord's Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So it's through Christ that we are reconciled. We're brought back to our right relationship with God. It's not through coming to church. It's not through getting baptized. It's not through reading your Bible. It's not through praying. It's not through trying to live a good moral life. All those things are good. But that's not going to cause you to bridge that gap of sin that's between you and a holy God. The only way that that can happen is by putting your faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he went to Calvary, he died in our place. He died upon a cross. And he was treated as if he had committed every sin by all who would ever believe in him. Yet he never committed one sin. He was perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. And so, at this point in Paul's study, and his writing through, through Romans, and in our study here today, it begs the question, well, how, how can so many people be affected for salvation by just one person? That's what the Jews would want to know. Don't we have to accomplish something as individuals? How can one man do something for us all? And Paul, as he always does, he anticipates that question. And this is all kind of review in a nutshell here. But he he anticipates that question. How is it that, that Jesus Christ, one person, you're saying, Paul, we have to put our faith and trust in one person and in the work of one person? And then somehow that's going to save us? Not just save one person, but save anybody who does that. How is it that one man's act can have such a wide spread effect. And in order to answer that question, he draws an analogy. He draws an illustration between Adam and Christ. And that's what we see here in this text. I mean, he's kind of saying, well, we shouldn't be so shocked that one person, Christ, provides salvation for for all when it was one person, Adam, who got us into this problem. 
All right? That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be what? Made alive. So it's, it's through Adam that we were all dead in the first place. We've all been tainted with sin because of Adam's act of disobedience in the garden. And so it is with one man, Adam, how he affected adversely all of us who follow in the human race. And the last time I checked, we're all human. So one man, Christ, can affect for good, for life, all those who follow in his way. And so we're looking particularly at verses 12 through 19, at this analogy between Adam and Christ. And so I want to read that for us, and then we'll see how far we get today. We've, we've already done the first couple of verses, but I'm going to read them in review. So ver- beginning in verse 12, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift, and this is kind of where we're going to spend our time today, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that One man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, this is... As I said last week, it's a difficult section of Scripture. So if your mind's just loopy right now and you're going, whoa, what did this guy just say? Um, That's fine. All right? That's that's where we want to be. We want to be at a point where we're dependent, not on our own intellect, but we're dependent on God to give us clarity of thought when we look at Scriptures like this. And so he says, and he begins there in verse 12, that by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin. We looked at this last week. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. That one man was who? Adam. And that was the first point last week. If you are in Adam, you are under the reign of death. That's what he says in verses 14 to, uh, or verses 12 to 14. He says if you're under the reign of Adam, if you're, under, if you're following Adam at all, if you're a human being, in other words, then somehow you've been affected by by sin. And the way that we have been affected by sin, the result is death. Not just physical death, but also spiritual death. Separation for all of eternity from a holy God. Now, he wants to make it very clear that one man's act affected us in such a way, such a tragic way, that it led to death. And so he says, their sin entered into the world, into the cosmos through one man. And we talked about last week how this wasn't the beginning of sin. Adam and Eve didn't invent sin. Okay, it says that it was through them, through Adam especially, that sin entered into this world. Did did sin exist before? Sure it did. It, It existed before the Garden of Eden. It had to. Because who else was tainted by sin? Lucifer, right? 
the Son of the Most High, he came, or the, 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 the light of the Most He came down, and what did he do? He, he fell. He wanted to be like God. All right? That's what he said. And he said, I want to be like God, I, 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 I. And that caused him to be sinful. And so sin was around before Adam and Eve. It just wasn't in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a perfect place. And that's how weird sin is at times. That's how uh, evil sin is. You think about it. They, had, they could do whatever they wanted in the garden. Anything. They could pick from whatever tree they wanted to. The only thing God says was, don't eat from this one tree. And guess where they went? Right to that one tree. I mean, that's, that's how ridiculous it is. And as a result of their fall, as a result of their sin, it says that death entered through sin. And like I said, not only physical death, but spiritual death. And then it said, death spread to all men. Because we all came from Adam and Eve. And death reigns over all. There's not one person here that can say with confidence, I will never die. I'm going to live for all of eternity right here physically. I'm never going to get older. I just got a couple words. Go look in the mirror and let me see your high school picture. I guarantee you look different. Okay? I mean, that's just the reality, right? I mean, we're getting older. The body's breaking down. It's not building itself up as much as we like to try to build it up. I think it was J. Vernon McGee that somebody asked him one time, well, do you think that... that uh, Women putting on makeup is spiritual. Do you, think that's, do you think that's sin? And his answer was, brother, I tell them, if they need it, pack it on. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of one of those things. You know, we're trying to make ourselves look different than what we really are. We're breaking down. And so he shows in verses 13 to 14 there that... This analogy, he says, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now remember, we talked about this being a a parenthetical thought. It's a parenthesis inside of his thought. You could really read the text this way. You could read verse 12 and then jump all the way down to verse 18. You, You could say, therefore, just as sin came into the world... Through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, verse 18 there, for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. Everything in between verses 12 and 18 is a parenthesis. There's actually a parenthesis inside a parenthesis. And so it can be kind of confusing. But he's drawing this analogy between Adam and Christ. And the only part of the analogy that is really true is that they each did one thing that affected many. All right? He's not saying that, that, that Christ and Adam are equal. He couldn't be saying that. Because when you stop and you look at the contrasts in this section of Scripture, you can see these contrasts throughout the, t- the text that we read. You see a trespass versus a gift. You see death versus eternal life. You see condemnation versus justification. You see one versus many. You see sin versus righteousness. Adam versus Christ. It continues down in verses 18 to 21. Disobedience versus obedience. Sinners versus those who have been made righteous. And then the law versus grace. So we're looking at this and we're summing it up and we're saying, if you are in Adam, you are under the reign of death. But if you are in Christ, you will reign in life because Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam. And what has happened and will yet happen because of Jesus Christ. And so if you're in Adam, you're under the reign of death. We've seen that. Now today we want to look at a little bit further down, and you might be asking this question. You might be asking the question, well, doesn't in Genesis say that Eve ate, and then she gave it to her husband to eat? So why is God so ticked off at Adam, and why does all this stuff have to happen through Adam? 
I mean, it was Eve that sinned first. The Bible answers that. It says, well, she was deceived. All right? Still sinned, but she was deceived. But Adam should have known better. And there's a reason why Adam should have known better. I mean, God created Adam and Eve as the first human beings. He placed them in the Garden of Eden, and he gave them a strict commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God, and as a result of that, they resulted, it resulted in God banishing them from the garden and imposing a curse on the human race as a result of their sin. And even though Eve was the first to sin, beloved, God held Adam, the man, accountable. And it's because of Adam's sin, not Eve's sin, but Adam's sin, that the whole human race is plunged into a pit of sin. And you say, well, what? that doesn't seem fair. Why is that? Because God appointed, listen, and this isn't, this is just what the Bible says, okay? So either believe the word and embrace this or, or you don't. But God appointed the man as the head. He says it over and over in Scripture. He appointed the man as the head of his wife in the garden before the fall even occurred. He was created first. And it's, it's, we're talking here about the headship. And it, re, it involves responsibility and it also involves accountability. You notice Satan didn't go to Adam. He went to who? Eve. Why? Because he knew. He wasn't stupid. He knew that she could be deceived. He wanted to tempt her. And then what's Adam do? Eve says, hey, this tastes pretty good. You know, rather than say, what are you doing, wife? You know, this is wrong. God forbid us to do that. We shouldn't be doing this. What's he do? Eh, it looks pretty good to me, too. And he takes a big bite of whatever fruit it was. He knew better. And so God puts the responsibility, he puts the accountability on Adam. They both had to pay. Any woman that has... Children understand that. Okay, that's part of the curse. Pain and childbearing. But Adam passively followed her lead. Rather than lead his home, he was following. And God charges Adam with introducing sin into the world because as Eve's head, Adam was responsible. Now, it's unfortunate because... The church has done a very poor teaching on the headship of men in the home. Or even the headship of men in churches. And I'm just going to give you some scriptures today. You can look them up on your own. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24, it says, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands. You might be sitting there going, did he just say that wives, women have to submit to men? Well, no. I said, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And he goes on and he talks about how husbands should love their wives. This isn't a submission of dominance, men. This doesn't give you the, the right, you know, yeah, my, my woman's barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen. That's where I want her. You know, that's not biblical. That's degrading to women. You know, and the thing that you need to understand is that we are equal. We truly are. And I don't think that it's, it's, it's rocket science to figure that out. But so many times today, people think that somehow women are less than men. And that's not the way it is. We are created in the image of God. And so we have to stop and say, well, does submission mean that, you know, the woman is just a doormat? No. It doesn't mean that. I really believe in any marriage, there's a, there's a mutual submission that has to take place. I, I thank God for that. If that wasn't true, I mean, my marriage would be a major wreck. 
If I just did what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do, and my wife just, well, I just got to submit. I mean, we'd be on a, a, a train to nowhere, okay? I need her discernment. I need her input. I need her talents. But she needs mine. So don't use the word submission as something that's negative. Because you know what? We are to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a negative thing. That's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. See, all men are responsible for their own home. There's going to come a day, guys, when you stand before the Lord and pointing to your wife isn't going to work. Because you're held accountable. You're the head of that home, whether you want to be or not. And see, what has sin done? Sin has introduced the idea that the woman doesn't like this. So the woman is constantly trying to usurp the man's authority in the home. That causes tension. And in some homes, you can see where the guy finally just gives up and says, yeah, whatever, do whatever you want. And they're not doing what God has called them to do in their home as a husband or even as a spiritual leader. That's a hard message that people don't like to hear today, but that's what the Bible says. And I think it even goes further than that. It even t- creeps into the local church. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 15, Paul writes this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to, a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Why does Paul say, in the context of the church, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man? I think he knew that that would be an issue. You look at churches today. I got a, a, a voicemail the other day. And the lady started the voicemail. She said, hi, I'm Pastor Denise so-and-so from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I want to have a miracle crusade in your church. Well, you know, there's something wrong there. I mean, the Bible is pretty explicit about who should be leading the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 to 7. It says, therefore, an overseer or a pastor or an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, today, with our weird society and you have all this, you know, cross-marriage stuff going on, you might be able to make a point if you believe in all that. But here it says, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Mustn't be a recent convert, lest he be puffed up and conceited and fall into the condemnation, condemnation of the devil. It's very clear in Scripture, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to 9, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, once again, the husband of one wife. And it goes on and it talks about who should be leading the local church. It's not women. That's what Scripture says. If you got a problem with that, talk to God. I don't know what to tell you. But I mean, when someone says, well, that's not a big deal to me, you know, if, it's, if a church has a woman pastor, I don't really care. Well, then you don't really care what the Bible says. You don't really care about how God planned out for us to care for his church, if that's the attitude. You should care. 
because simply it's wrong and God will not bless it. And so we have to be clear on what the Bible teaches concerning this. But it's not, a, it's not a negative thing for a woman to be submissive to a man. It's just not. That's what the enemy has taken, and, it's, it's, and he's twisted it. And so we need to be clear that from the very beginning, this was an issue. And so Paul says, back to Romans 5, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And that one man was Adam. And he basically, he didn't do what God told him to do. He wasn't the leader. He was a follower. And you saw how that played out. So today we want to move on and we want to look at the second point in our outline. Basically, the whole idea that when we stop and we think about Adam and we think about Christ and the parallels that are drawn there between them, okay, If you're in Christ, you will reign in life because Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin. This is what he says in verses 15 to 17. And these are some difficult verses, so we're going to kind of look at them. But I want you to to kind of have a clear understanding of what it it says. A couple times there, he, he uses the phrase much more. I think in verse 15... He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more. See that? And then down in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more. He uses those those terms. And what he's doing is Adam's sin resulted in this condemnation of everybody. And death to the human race was the result. But... On the other side of it, what's the parallel with Christ? Well, Christ's obedience unto death, that he was willing to go to the cross even though he didn't deserve it, resulted in justification and life to those who receive it. So let's look at the first point. The work of Christ is greater than Adam's sin because it displays and dispenses the abundance of God's grace. But the free gift, he says, is not like the transgression, or the trespass. For if by transgression or the trespass of one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Now, he uses that word trespass. We we could say offense. You could say you're crossing over the boundary. Um, it, it basically means to deviate from the correct path. You're, you're going down a side road that God told you not to go down. Um, and so what Adam did was a deviation. God told him to do one thing, Adam did another. It's evil. It was sinful. It was against God. And that's very clear from what the Scripture says. But on the other hand, the terms of Christ is a, is a free gift, he says. That word is, is charisma, it's, it's a grace gift, it's, it's, it's something that's good, it's righteous, it's pleasing to God. And so he, he's contrasting here the devastating effects of Adam's sin, of Adam's transgression, that many died. And, and by the way, that word many there, you could, you could say for all died. All right, he's using the word many because he, he uses it down a little further and he's drawing kind of this illustration between the two analogy between the two. But we know that the scripture says that all have sinned, right? All have died. So if all died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So the first many there means all. The second many means many. And this is where it gets kind of, in in a way, confusing. Because many is not viewing the affected groups numerically, but really uh, qualitatively. He's he's looking at everybody is tainted by sin. That's all. But not everybody is going to be saved because Jesus died on the cross. That's universalism. That's everybody's going to get saved. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there will be a hell, there is a hell, and there will be people that go there. 
And it's those people that reject the free gift of grace, the free gift of life through the work of Christ that are going to end up there. And so in the first instance here, it refers to the devastating effects of one man's sin on everybody. That means the entire human race. You could cross that all out, or many out, and say all. That's really what it means. It's like a little campfire that's left untended, which starts a a forest fire that destroys the whole forest. Okay, one man sinned, and then everybody died as a result of that. And then he says there in the second use of that word many, That Christ, the, one, the, the, the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, the end of verse 15, abounded for many. Okay, that couldn't mean everybody. That couldn't say all. <clears throat> because the second group is, is the group that has what? Put their faith and trust in Christ. It says in verse 17 that they received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. So through the offensive act, many or all are dead, literally died, everybody. But the many in Christ are those who are saved by God's grace. And he kind of points that out later down there in verse 18. But we'll get to that in a second. I think the other reason why he may use the word many is Isaiah 53.11 uses many, and maybe he's using that to bolster his argument. I don't know. He says, uh, my servant... Uh, make many to be accounted righteous in Isaiah. So maybe he's trying to bolster his argument there, quoting Old Testament scripture. But he wants them to understand without a shadow of a doubt that basically it's important that the work of Christ is greater than Adam's sin. If that's not true, beloved, we have no hope. <laughs> if the work of Christ is not greater than Adam's sin, what are we gonna, how are we going to get saved? Secondly, the work of Christ is greater than Adam's sin because it overcame many sins and is freely bestowed through justification. He says in verse 16, he says, And the free gift, all right, the gift of salvation, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. In other words, you have two men doing separate actions that affect the whole of people. And so he says the difference between the free gift of salvation that we receive from Christ and the result of the, the Adam's sin, the judgment that we received, he says in verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. One act by Adam of disobedience, he he sinned, and it it brought condemnation on the whole lot of people. The whole human race was condemned under Adam's sin. But he says, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So what's he saying? He's saying basically that just because Jesus died on a cross doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. He says you have to believe. You have to understand that our justification is brought and given to us as a point of our belief in Christ. You can't believe in Buddha and get saved. You can't believe in in Muhammad and and, and, uh, be justified. That's not going to work. You have to believe in Christ. And he's hammered this home, you know, in the previous chapters. But when you stop and think about it, condemnation and justification are very judicial terms. Condemnation means basically you've gone before a judge and he's condemned you. You're guilty. And justification is just the same thing. You've gone before a judge and he's, he's given you righteousness. He's accounted you righteous. You're justified. It's a judicial term. And Christ's work is greater than Adam's sin because it overcame the great devastation that resulted in Adam's sin. There was no other way out. Everybody was on their way to hell as a result of Adam's sin. 
And it's only when God stepped in with the plan of salvation and said, wait a minute, here's what's going to happen. Some of you will believe in my son. Some of you will follow my son. You will believe in his work that it accomplished your salvation on Calvary. As a result of that belief, I'm going to declare you righteous. And because I'm declaring you righteous, you're brought back into a proper relationship with me as your God. And because you have that proper relationship with me as your God, one day you will be guaranteed that you will live with me forever in heaven. What a glorious thing. It overcame the devastation caused by Adam. I mean, one commentator says this, Adam lit the forest fire that devastated the human race. But Christ not only put it out, but he planted a new forest, an eternal one, for all who will receive his glorious gift. John Calvin said this, If Adam's fall had the effect of producing the ruin of many, the grace of God is much more efficacious in benefiting many since Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. I mean, isn't it a glorious thing to understand that you've been saved not by your own intuition, not by your own doing. You've been saved by the power of God. Who's going to go against that? Paul answers that question a little later on. Who can separate us, right, from the love that we have in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nothing at all. We're secure in Christ. Well, thirdly, the work of Christ is greater than Adam's sin because rather than bringing the reign of death, it causes those who receive it to reign in life. That's what he says in verse 17. He says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Everybody was affected by Adam's mess up, by Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. He says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness... Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. How do you escape the power of death? How do you escape the reign of death? You have to receive the abundance of God's grace. You have to receive the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Thank God he doesn't say, well, if you want to reign in life, you have to go to church. Oh, you have to get baptized. Oh, you have to read your Bible. Oh, you have to memorize Scripture. Oh, you have to be nice to the poor people. You've got to help these people out. You've got to help those people out. And, and by the way, you have to live a moral life too. And if you do all those things, one day you will reign in life. Thank God he didn't say that. We, we'd be lost forever. But he said, you receive it by receiving the abundance of grace. That means God has more grace than you're ever, ever going to need. I don't care what you've done in your past. I don't care what you've done or what you'll even do in your future. If you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, you have to understand that you are under the grace of God. You know, sometimes Christians get this a little messed up. And they, I've heard Christians, you know, how's how's it going? Oh, it's just, I'm just not, you know, things are not going well. And I just, you know, I just think God's punishing me. Excuse me? Well, you know, lost my job and marriage broke. I just think God's punishing me. I want to say, are you a believer? Are you are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I've been going to church for a long time. But well, you have a you have a a faulty understanding of your relationship with God, because nowhere in the Bible does it say that God will punish His children. God doesn't punish us. He what? He disciplines us. Why does he discipline us? Because he loves us. You know, it's like your, your son or your daughter disobeying you as a parent, and you're just saying, I disown you. What? You know, you can say that all you want. They're still your kid. You know, that's, that's the point. And so, whatever happens from the time that we commit our lives to Christ, we have to understand it, that we are partakers of that abundant grace. That God does not punish us as his children he may discipline us if we get out of hand and we do something that's wrong and and we're living lives of disobedience he may let that known to everybody which would be embarrassing which would be a form of discipline or he may take more severe measures some believers maybe 
He says, you know what? You're, you're being such a horrible testimony for me. But you're still my boy. You're still my daughter. You know, I, I can't stand it anymore. So uh, you're just going to come home a little early. I'm going to bring you home. <laughs> I'm going to discipline you. Even on to death. We don't hear that taught very much, but the Bible speaks of it. And so we have to stop and we have to think that, you know what? Are we under the abundance of God's grace? Have we tasted of that gift of righteousness? If we are, the Bible says that we will reign through Jesus Christ. We will reign in life. It also means that the sting and the fear of death are removed. The Bible says that we're more than what? Conquerors. Okay, it also means that throughout all eternity we will reign with Christ. He's the King of kings. The Lord of lords. Lloyd-Jones asked this question. He says, who are the kings that he is king over? If he's king of kings. Who are the kings that he is king over? And he answers it with two words. He says, we are. We will reign one day in life. And I think it's so important that we realize that because we can become defeated. We, be, we can become very um, devastated by the effects of sin all around us. And we have to have hope that somehow God is going to carry us through this. And so he says, don't be worried. Yeah, this trespass thing that Adam messed up here is a big deal. But you know what? God has a bigger deal. His grace is more than sufficient. So he says this justification in life is for all men who have put their faith, their trust in Christ. And that's the important thing. There's a lot of people that will take verse 18 and they say, see, this means that everybody's going to be saved because it says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men men okay like i said that's that's universalism that's saying everybody will be saved he's not teaching that that would contradict basically what he teaches everywhere else that sinners will face judgment and eternal condemnation plus if you just jump back one one verse in verse 17 he kind of qualifies who he's talking about he says much more will those who what receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. That's who are the people who will be justified before God. So to sum up, through Adam, sin, through Adam's sin, all were condemned as sinners, but through Christ's righteousness, all in him are justified. All who are in Adam are condemned. All who are in Christ are are justified. We have a right standing before God. And it's because of the work of Christ. You know, we're going to celebrate communion here in a minute or so. And it's important to understand that when we celebrate communion, we have the Lord's table. This isn't going to save you. This isn't some kind of, you know, fancy, you know, drink that we're giving you. It's Welch's grape juice. And the bread is not some kind of, it's matzah. Okay, it's bread that has no uh, yeast in it. And so it, it's something that is a symbol of what we believe the work of Christ did. And we're doing this in an act of obedience that Christ told us. It says on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it as a symbol of what was going to happen to him. And then he took the cup and he blessed it. And see, these are symbols that we partake of. There's nothing holy about this, this grape juice or this bread. Remember one time we were over in the, we had to carry the stuff that was left over over to the kitchen. And there was probably half a tray of the little cups with some grape juice in it. And so I'm, you know, <laughs> just drinking them down. So I'm like, what are you doing, Pastor? I said, I'm getting rid of the juice. What do you mean? I'm not going to throw it out. You know, boy, is are you allowed to drink that? It's, it's, it's grape juice. It's, it's just grape juice. You know, if I poured it in a big glass, you wouldn't have a problem just because it's got little communion cups. It's just juice. 
See, we get a, a weird, what it represents is important. But don't miss the fact that it's juice. It's, it's a cracker. I mean, what it represents is, is, is incredible. The sacrifice that Christ made. And it's by that that we obtain our righteousness. And so he says in verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience or sin, the many were made sinners. They were made sinners. That's to reiterate a point we made last week. We're not sinners because we sinned. You understand that? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There's a big difference. Because if you think that we're sinners because we sin, what's the, 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 the likelihood of that conversation kind of heading up to, well, I just got to stop sinning. And if I stop sinning, then I won't be a sinner. See, that's what the Pharisees believed. Of Jesus' time. That's why they built themselves up as some righteous, holier-than-thou people. That you know, They looked down on the common people because they were just commoners and sinners. But us Pharisees, we were you know, more righteous than anybody. And Jesus came along and just blew them out of the water and said, Yeah, you're, you're righteous. You're just like a whitewashed tomb. You're dead on the inside. You may look real nice on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. That's what religious trappings will get you. There's a lot of people in America today that go to church every week. Maybe more time, maybe more, more than once. But they're going to a church that says, well, because you come to this church, this makes you holy. Or because you say this prayer, this makes you holy. Or because you do this, that makes you holy. And that's how the grace of God is, is given out in those certain religions. And that's heresy. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the grace of God is a free gift. We come and we can receive it as a free gift. If you're in Christ by faith, and you put your faith in His sacrifice on the cross, you are free. You are free from sin. You are free from death, and you will reign in life through Him forevermore. Because Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin. Just in conclusion, you apply this. You know, fathers, we have to really take more seriously our own role, not only in the home, but even in the church. Your behavior and your choices greatly affect your children. You know that if you're a dad. So we need to live prayerfully. We need to live carefully. I mean, thank God our sins won't affect the whole human race like Adam's did. But never is sin isolated. Think about how your conduct, how your, your behavior will affect your children. Secondly, since the universal problem of the human race is sin, there's only one universal solution, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to be intimidated by somebody who has a lot of education or, or has a bunch of degrees behind their name. I want you to see someone who's a sinner, who needs a savior. You know, that changes the whole playing field. It doesn't matter whether you're talking to a, a, a doctor, a molecular scientist, a brain surgeon. We're all in the same boat, folks. We've all sinned. And then thirdly, if the universal problem of guilt by identification with Adam's sin, then salvation cannot be through adding our own good works. See, that's what this text is really about. It's about how sinners can be made right with God. And we have to identify with Christ's righteousness by faith, the Bible says. We receive God's gift of salvation through faith. And we put our faith and trust in the work of Christ on Calvary. And then lastly, if we are in Christ, our salvation is secure. Not because of anything in us, but because we are in Christ. We are placed in Him strategically. We're protected by Christ. See, we're not going to be saved by our performance. That's not going to save us. We're going to be saved by Christ's obedience on the cross and the fact that you're trusting in him, like we said, in Christ alone. Ask yourself this question. Question, are you in Adam? Are you under the reign of death? Are you feeling the burden of your sin here this morning? Or by faith, are you in Christ? Are you reigning in life? Have your sins been forgiven? 
There's a hymn we sing once in a while, Love Lifted Me. It says, born of the Spirit with life from above, into God's family divine, justified fully through Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. And the transaction so quickly was made when as a sinner I came, took of the offer of grace he did proffer. He saved me, oh praise his dear name. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your word shows us, it tells us that we're not saved by our performance. We're saved because Christ went and died in our place on a cross and gave himself as a sacrifice. We don't have to perform before God to get a hug from God. The Bible says that we can come just as we are because He's going to make us into a new creature. He's going to forgive our sins. It says that He will transform our hearts. We will become a new creature in Christ. No longer under the reign of death and sin. But Father, that we could live a life of holiness before You. Day in and day out. Not because of who we are, but because of the power of your spirit that resides within us. Father, I pray for any who might be here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that they would understand that there's a way out from underneath the burden of their sin. No matter what it is. No matter what they've done. Whether in thought or deed. Lord, you died for them. You died for their sin. By the simple act of us coming before you, a holy God, and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Acknowledging our own sinfulness. Being willing to turn to the only place we can turn to, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he will forgive you. He will save you. And that's a prayer of faith. And Lord, I ask that you would uh, remind us as Christians that we're not under some guilt trip, that we don't have to perform before you. Lord, it's not that good works are not good. They are, and they should be part of our lives. We should be living in obedience before you. But Lord, those times when maybe we slip up, we sin, and we fall short. Lord, you're not there to kick us further down the road. You're there extending your arms extending your hand, loving us, maybe even disciplining us back to the right path. Lord, help us to be mindful of that so that we could come to you, that we could run to you and confess those sins, knowing that you're a faithful God who forgives us of our sin and all of all unrighteousness. And Lord, we just thank you and pray that you would bless our communion time now. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.